0: Amen. Well, Let's open our Bibles to the book of Jude this morning. The book of Jude. And I'm going to let you guess which chapter when you get there. Book of Jude, a little book in the New Testament, just one chapter, long right before the book of Revelation. So if you get to the end of your Bible and you didn't find it, just go back a few pages and it'll be somewhere close there. Book of Jude. There's a couple times during the year where it's more challenging as a preacher than at other times. One of them's coming up when we have our patch play. You're gonna get forty five minutes to an hour of cuteness and then you'll have to look at me for a few minutes at the end and I look, I, I get it. I can't compete with that. I get it. But another time that is challenging is when there's food in the room. <laughs> Anybody put anything in this in the oven? Anybody put anything in the oven? No? Okay, good. Because usually what happens, somebody puts something in the oven, if they, do, if they do put something in the oven, about halfway through my message, the smell wafts in and everybody just starts, your mouth starts watering. And at that point, I know I just got to just close it down because I, I can't preach through that. I'm starving, you know. So this morning, I want to take just a few minutes on this homecoming Sunday i look at a couple verses, the last two verses of this book of Jude, actually, and preach to you about the glory of God. Jude, verse 24, I'll read verses 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, Dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. The title of my message today is simply, Him That Is Able. Heavenly Father, we want to take a few minutes to reflect on your glory and majesty today. And honestly, you are so far above us that we cannot even fully comprehend you. So all I ask is that today you would give us a little more understanding of how great you are, that you would get just a little more glory in us and through us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This little book, the book of Jude, is really a a fascinating little book. It was a short letter written by an apostle by the name of Jude to believers in general, not any one particular church or group. And he was writing to them because the church was dealing with false prophets. I mean, this was just within really one generation of Jesus being crucified and rising again. And already people were coming in and they were teaching things that weren't true. And so, in verse number three, he says that he wanted to write him to them of the common faith. He kind of it seems like just wanted to write an encouraging, kind of a, you know, a pep rally kind of letter almost. But as he sat down to put pen to paper, the Holy Spirit led him to write on another topic. He said, "I wanted, I, I wanted to write to you to exhort and exhort you to earnestly contend for the faith." And the word contend there has the idea of to wrestle for, to wrestle with. And he goes on to talk about the challenges that were facing the churches, primarily revolving around the false teachers, the false prophets. And he talks about their doctrine. He talks about their way of life and the bad influence they have in churches and how ultimately one day God's going to judge them for what they've done. But he ends this short letter... In verses 22 and 23, with an admonition to the believers of what we should do in light of the climate, if you will, in churches, even though there are false teachers and even though some people are being swept up in heresy, uh, we should continue to grow in the faith. We should continue to have compassion on others and, and to make a difference Uh, by saving them with the gospel, by reaching out with the gospel to save them, is, is, is what he talks about there. And then he finishes his letter in these final verses by turning everybody's attention to the best place we could ever turn our attention, and that is to God. Having talked about the false prophets, having talked about the believers, he ends by reminding us of who God is, and why God deserves our glory. It's easy sometimes to allow our focus to get off, to be distracted, to lose our perspective. And even on a day like today, when we think about what God has done for Philadelphia Baptist Church, sometimes it's easy for us to uh, focus on the people over the years and you know what I'm thankful for the people of Philadelphia Baptist Church and uh, I, I I was just talking to somebody this week actually and I was I was I was bragging on the people of our church and just how wonderful um, uh, our folks are and and uh, I told someone again, you've heard me say this. There's quite a few people in this church that I say I want to be like them when I grow up, you know. The Lord has just put together such an amazing group of people. And you go back through our history uh, over the last uh, many years, and we can we can talk about the individuals that God used in a wonderful way. We could talk about the properties and the facilities. Uh, you know, how the Lord back in the 70s led the church out of what is now basically downtown Atlanta, moved to Conyers and was there until... Uh, about 2007, 2008, when the church moved out here to, to the middle of nowhere, Georgia, Rutledge, and, uh, and we could talk about how the Lord is blessed with property and facilities and things, and uh, to be able to have the kind of property that we have today, uh, to have it uh, 26 acres, almost a 30,000 square foot building uh, that, uh, we ha- that we own free and clear, no debts or anything like that, uh, we could talk about that. But it's easy to get distracted by that and forget that that it's not about the people, it's not about the properties, and it's not about the programs that we put together either. I'm thankful the Lord has allowed us to uh, build a very, I, I think, extensive ministry that reaches to uh, lots of life stages and very a- various aspects and different things. I'm so thankful for the people that make it happen. Um, I'm always just overwhelmed each year when we do our worker training day. uh, uh, Usually in January, we have uh, our folks who work uh, with the children's ministries and on our safety teams, they come for that training day. And we will have basically half of the number of people we'll have here on Sunday we'll have here at the training day because we have that many people that are actively working involved in, in the various ministries and programs. But it's not even about all of the programs and ministries that we have either. You see, it all should go back to God himself. It's all about what God has done. And we are simply instruments that he has used. Anything good that Philadelphia Baptist Church has accomplished in its existence was done by God. It was done by God. And therefore, God deserves the glory. From these verses that we've read this morning, Jude verses 24 and 25, I want to give you just some very, very simple thoughts. I'm not going to try and wow you with any eloquence today or impress you with any kind of uh, theological gymnastics, all right? We're going to talk about why we should glorify God, how we should glorify God, and when we should glorify God. Number one, why we should glorify God. In verse 24, Jude began by saying, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior. Now here we find three specific reasons why you and I should glorify God. Now, we could sum up why we should glorify God with just that first statement when He said, Now unto Him that is able. It's because God is able. It's because God can do anything He wants to do, and God does do all things well that we should glorify Him. But He gives three specific reasons that I want you to notice with me this morning why we should glorify God. First of all, He is able to keep us from falling. If you want to outline this, we'll put it this way, we should glorify God because He can protect us from falling. He can protect us from falling. Now, immediately we have to define what do we mean by falling? What are we talking about here that God is able to protect us from? And the particular word that's used here is a word that simp- is a generic word, means stumbling or tripping of any kind, anything that results in you going going down, anything that results in you falling. Now this would be distinguished from other times where the word fall might mean something like apostasy or something like that. There's a broader word here because it's encompassing a much bigger idea in God's ability. Now, let me speak, first of all, as, uh, to God's ability to keep Christians from falling into hell. You know, as a child of God, you are kept in the almighty hand of God. The moment a person places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ from salvation, the Bible says that they are placed in God's hands, and therefore they are eternally secure John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Those verses right there, I think, are the best verses in all of Scripture to prove eternal security. Eternal security is simply the idea that once you're saved, you're always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot forfeit your salvation. You cannot return your salvation. It is yours forever. Not because of anything you've done, not because of what the preacher says, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ Himself said in these verses. Notice how he put it. First of all, he said that those that come to Him, that is, they come to Him by faith, believing in Him to save them from their sins, placing their faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. Those that come to Him, He says, notice His words, "...they shall never perish." If it were possible to perish at some point after Jesus giving you eternal life if that could be taken back and you could end up uh, perishing anyway, or you could somehow lose that salvation and you could perish anyway, then the words of Jesus Christ in these verses are false and He's a liar. You cannot believe that you can lose your salvation without denying what Jesus Himself said here. But then notice how he illustrates the security of the believer when he says that they are in his hand. Notice his words again. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. When you are saved, you are put into the hand of Christ and he grabs a hold of you. You don't grab a hold of him. He grabs a hold of you. That's an important distinction because if it were up to me to hang on to Jesus, I'd be doomed. Because my strength is small. In my weakness, I would lose my grip and I would fall. But no, he says, no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. Those are the words of Jesus. So when it comes to can you lose your salvation, it's pretty clear. No man is able to pluck you out of Jesus' hand. Can you pull yourself? Can anybody pull you out of Jesus' hands? It reminds me of when I was a little kid, and sometimes my dad would play with me. Uh, maybe he'd put a quarter in his hand and close his hand and say, Now, if you can open my hand, you can have this quarter. Now, my dad was a cabinet builder, a carpenter, and so he had a pretty good grip. And when I was 5, six, seven, 15, 16, 17, I could not open my dad's hand to get that whatever it was out of there because he was that much stronger than me. Well, Jesus is infinitely stronger than everyone. No man is able to pluck them out of my hand. But then he goes on to say in the next verse, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So it's not just the hand of Jesus that you are placed in, it's also the Father's hand. So in order for someone to take your salvation away, they would have to pry off the grip of God the Father and then they would have to pry open the hand of God the Son to get to you. Oh, and by the way, if they did that, they'd be in the hand of Jesus too and they wouldn't want to leave. Our salvation is secure not because we are able to keep us from falling but because He is able to keep us from falling. There are many people, though, who believe and who teach that in order to be sure of your salvation, you have to meet a certain level of performance. You have to meet a certain standard. You have to do these certain things. And if you don't do these certain things, well, then you're not saved. Our salvation and our security are not dependent on us. We are not able, if it were up to us to save ourselves or to keep ourselves secure, we never could, only He can protect us from falling. Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Listen, you can know for sure that you are saved. You do not have to live in doubt of that. You do not have to wonder about that. You can know for sure that you're saved, not because you're able to prove it not because you're able to perform, but because God is able it 's his ability. but let me say that this protection from falling is not just for eternal salvation it's also for daily sanctification here's some place here's a place where some Christians miss the boat they live as if their sanctification, that is the way that they grow to be more like Christ, to do what is right, to put off the flesh, to put on uh, the deeds of the Spirit, and that whole process, they live as though that was all them. They live as though salvation was all God, but now sanctification's all me. I've got I've to get to work. I've got to do it. I've gotta, it's all up to me. If sanctification were up to you and me, it would never happen. You know why? Because we're not able. I like how Paul summarized the struggle that we all face in in Romans chapter 7. He said, the good that I would, that I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. You ever been there? You say, that sounds like a tongue twister to me. Well, it's kind of a tongue twister, but it's it's also a theology twister because... The good that I would, that is the right things I know I should do, I don't do them like I should. That doesn't make sense. If you know you should do it, why don't you? But then the evil that you would not, that is the bad things you know you shouldn't do, those are the things that too often we do. Well, that doesn't make any sense either. How can we explain this struggle? How can we explain this This contradiction that I know I should do something good, but I don't do it, and I know I shouldn't do something bad, but I do it anyway. There's only one explanation, and it's called sin. And even though we are, those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we've been saved from our sins, and we've been declared sanctified in Christ, we still live in a world affected by sin, in a body affected by sin, and we still have the struggle With the flesh, Galatians chapter 5 says that we are to walk in the Spirit so that we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And here's the problem though, is many times we act like if we are strong enough, then we can keep ourselves from falling back into sin. And we act like that, it, it, that we got this thing called the Christian life. We can do it if we just are disciplined enough, if we just make enough heart, uh, important decisions, if we just check all the right boxes, then we can do it. But let me tell you, if that's the way you're living the Christian life, if you're not already extremely frustrated, you're very soon going to be. Because you will find that it will be nothing but a series of failures because you're depending on your own strength. You are not able to keep you from falling in sanctification. Only God is able to do that. How does this work? Well, Paul summed it up this way in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is how sanctification works. It's not I live by my strength and my determination and my self will and my good habits. It's I live by the faith of the Son of God. I'm crucified with Christ. I when when I accepted Christ as my Savior, I identified with his death, saying that I know that I am powerless to save myself and I am powerless to overcome the, the, the the pool of sin in my life. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not me. It's Christ living in me. This is how sanctification works. It's simply recognizing our inability and depending on God's ability to work in us and through us, to change us, to make us more like Christ. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. I know it's listed as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. But what, it, what that is, it's the produce, it's what the Holy Spirit produces in our lives as we yield to God. He is able to keep us from falling, not only in eternity, but daily. God will protect us from falling when we follow Him when we humbly submit to Him and we walk in obedience, when we do that, it is God who upholds us. It is He who sustains us so that we do not fall. Why should we glorify God? Number one, because He can protect us from falling. But then number two, He says in verse 24, not only is God able to keep you from falling, He's also able to present you faultless, before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. That's a mouthful. Let's see if we can unpack it a little bit here. When we were saved, the Bible says that we were justified. Our choir sang about that this morning, a song based on Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1. We are justified by faith, and therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified means that you were declared righteous. You were made to be as if you had never sinned before. That's an amazing thing right there. Our record was wiped clean so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin, He sees the righteousness of Christ. All of Jesus' righteousness was given to us and we were made sinless in the sight of God at the moment that we received Christ as our Savior. That was made possible because Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place, shed His blood to pay for our sin, and He has washed us clean through His own blood. Now that is what we have been declared to be. But that also is a process. It's it's something that, uh, that God began a work in our life at that moment where though we've been declared free of sin, now we have to learn how to live free of sin, how to say no to temptation, say yes to the Holy Spirit. And what Jude is pointing to here, he's pointing to the the goal. He's pointing to the finish line. He says, not only is God able to keep us from falling, but He's also able to present us faultless before His presence with exceeding joy. You see, right now, if we're honest... Right now, none of us would say, I'm faultless. And if you think you are, just ask your neighbor. They could probably clarify for you, all right? None of us would say, oh, I've arrived. I've figured it out. No more sin in me. No, we all know that we are still struggling with sin. You might have been saved 10, 20, 30, 60, 70 years. Doesn't matter. You're still struggling with sin. So let me ask you, if it were up to you to present yourself faultless before God, could you do it? Could you ever get to the point in your life where you could say, I am now faultless? No, you could not. And here's why. Because you've already sinned. Here's the amazing thing. To be faultless doesn't mean I'll never do it again. To be faultless means I've never done it at all. Could you go back and rewrite your history and say, I never sinned at all? You couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. I'm not able to. But God can. And here's the amazing thing about justification, about salvation. That it's not just, all right, from this point forward, I'm fixing you. God fixes everything. Our past, our present, our future, it's all taken care of by Him, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that one day when we step into heaven, Jesus Christ, I I love this picture, He's going to present us. I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know if we're going to stand in a line and one by one as we approach the throne of God, Jesus Christ is going to say to God the Father, Here is Stephen Chambers. And Father, I want to present him to you as perfectly faultless. I don't know if that's how that's going to work, but that's the picture I get in my mind. Can you you even fathom that? Because I know me, and I would never presume to stand before God Almighty and say, I present myself faultless. No. But yet Jesus will present us faultless in His presence. And I love that last phrase there, with exceeding joy with exceeding joy. I mean, what can make you happier than knowing that not only are your sins forgiven, they're gone, they're abolished, they're wiped away forever as if they never were so that you could stand before God Almighty in perfection, not because of what you've done, but because of what what Jesus has done. Why does God deserve our glory? Because He can protect us from falling. He can present us faultless. But then number three, Why should we glorify God? Because He's perfect in wisdom. The first phrase of verse 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, it says. He's the only wise God. Don't don't get confused by the language there. It's not that there's a bunch of gods and as you look through them, that the Lord is the only wise one. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that if you were to look for someone who was perfectly wise, there's only one. And he is God. He is the only wise God. He is perfect in wisdom. I'm so thankful that God is omnipotent. He knows everything. He knows everything about history already before it's ever happened. God knows. God knows everything about my life. He knows every thought that I'll think. He knows every word that I'll speak. He knows every action that I'll take. God knows. Psalm 147, verse 5 Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. God knows everything. Romans 11, 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. I'm so glad that God is perfect in wisdom. To me, this is a very practical and personal truth because it tells me that nothing that happens in my life takes God by surprise. Stuff happens all the time that takes us by surprise. Things happen that you don't expect. Life throws you a curveball and now you've got to adjust. Now you've got to change your plans. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You thought that this was the right track and now you've got to do something completely different. It seems like we're always being reminded just how little we actually know. But God is never surprised because He already knows everything. Not only does it mean that He knows everything that's going to happen, But it also means that God knows what is best. Why? Because He's the only wise God. God knows what is best. He's not sitting up in heaven hurriedly trying to figure out how to make the best of a bad situation. God has already decided in eternity past what is best and He already had a plan for each of our lives already worked out and we're simply in the middle of that plan right now watching God do what God knows is best to do. And it's simply up to us to get behind God's program. It's not up to you and me to figure out what is best and then tell God, all right, you you need to do this. It's up to you and me to say, all right, God, whatever you want to do, that's what's best. I'm going to follow you. You see, it's a completely reverse perspective way that most people live their lives. Most people live their lives evaluating situations and evaluating decisions to determine what is best and then acting on what they think is best. But when you serve the only wise God, you are freed from that burden. I call it a burden because you can never know for sure. Did you make the right decision? Because there's always another possibility of another piece of information out there that you might have missed. Something that may have made a difference that you were unaware of and and you made what you thought was a good decision, but later you find out it, it wasn't. But when you're trusting God and His wisdom to guide you, you don't have to worry about that. All you have to do is get behind what God is doing and trust Him to guide you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Many of you know these verses well. We are to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not into our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct our paths. God knows what is best. And let me add, as I often do, He knows when is best too. For me... I struggle as much with when as I do with what. All right, God, you know what's best. Now hurry up and do it. (laughs) That's what I struggle with. We have to learn to depend on God's best timing as well. Isaiah 55 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He is the only wise God. Why should we glorify God? Because He's able to prevent us or protect us from falling. He's able to present us faultless and He is perfect in wisdom. Quickly now, let's let's discuss how we should glorify God. I trust at this point that you're, you're, you're with me in understanding that we ought to glorify God for these reasons and so many others. But how do we go about doing that? Sometimes it's one of those religious terms we just toss out and we don't really stop to think about practically how do we carry this out in life. We say, whether therefore you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's great. That's scripture. We need to do that. But how? Well, I think these verses give us some very practical insight. Jude says in verse 25, To him be glory and majesty and dominion and power. Now notice what Jude is doing here. He is reminding us of the attributes of God that we ought to give God credit for. And when we talk about glorifying God, all we're saying is that we should actively proclaim the glory of God. The truth is you cannot add to or take away from God's actual glory. Okay, You're not going to make God any better by how you act or what you say. So when we talk about glorifying God, we're not talking about somehow inflating God Himself, but we're talking about proclaiming and displaying God's glory. God should be glorified in our own hearts when we acknowledge how great God is and through our lives as we tell others how great God is and as as we show them in the way that we live how great God is. And there are four words here that help us understand what that looks like. First of all, he said, to him be glory. Now, that's the word, the proper word that encapsulates this idea of God's God's greatness. And by definition, it means someone's opinion, judgment, or their view on something. To use a, a common word that would be roughly equivalent, we would say their reputation, so to glorify God is to build up His reputation. Now we, we understand how this works just in everyday life. When somebody comes to you and they talk about their friend or maybe their spouse or co-worker and they're just, they're just praising them for all the good things that they've done and, and how wonderful of a person they are. You know what they're doing? They're glorifying that person. Now I know we don't use that language because we want to maintain, and this is important, a distinction and how we talk about God and others, but that is the basic idea. And so, the first way that we glorify God is by simply building up His reputation, by telling other people, and by reminding ourselves how great God is. Revelation 4 says... And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and cast their crowns before Him saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for Thou hast created all things and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. If you want to use a simple word to help remember this idea, I just put down the word acclaim. Acclaim, A-C-C-L-A-I-M-E. We're talking about giving God His dues, His credit, the credit that is due Him, if you were, by telling others how great God is. Do you praise God before other people? I mean, seriously, when was the last time that you talked to anybody and in that conversation you talked about how great God was? You talked about the good things that God had done for you. You talked about how wonderful he is. You talked about anything about God that would build up his reputation. Do we do that? If we're not even telling anybody about how good God is, can we rightly say that we are glorifying God? To him be glory. But then there's a second word, and it's the word majesty. To him be majesty. The idea of majesty here I wrote down the word adoration to help me remember the concept. Adoration. It's kind of like the word majesty draws in my mind the picture of the kings of old. Here comes the king or the queen and all of their majesty. And you see their their regalness and their splendor. And and there's just an awe there. There's just an appreciation for the the office at least. And because of that, they have a, a special place of respect. Well, when it comes to God, He should have the ultimate place of respect in our life. Nobody should get more respect in, from you than the respect you give to God. How important is God to you? Colossians 1.18 says, And He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that He might have the preeminence. First place. That's the place God should be in our life. You see, glorifying God is not, doesn't begin on the outside. It begins on the inside. As we give God the majesty in our own heart, we put Him on the throne of our heart. We give Him the ultimate respect. We give Him the ultimate adoration. Is God first place in your life? It's significant that in Exodus 20 and verse number 3, God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He was not saying it's all right if you have a bunch of gods, just make sure that I'm in first position. That's not what the Lord was saying. What He was saying is that I am the one God and I should be the only God, that there should be no gods anywhere else, no gods before me. Can you say that about yourself? Is God first place in your life? He needs, or He deserves acclaim and adoration but then we should glorify God the next word that Jude uses is the word dominion to him be dominion the word dominion refers to his power his might his strength or the word I use to help me remember this is ability we are to praise God for his ability what he is able to do He is the Lord God Almighty. You know what that means? It means God can do whatever He wants to do. The omnipotence of God is the idea that God is all-powerful. There is nothing that is beyond His ability. If He wants to do it, He can do it. His His ability is infinite. You couple this with the idea that He's omniscient, that He knows everything, including what is best. And what you get is that, that wonderful truth that not only does God know what is best, He's able to do whatever is best, and no one can stop Him. No one can stop Him. Do you praise the ability of God? God, I know You can do it. I've got this problem. The doctors are saying this. The bill collectors are saying this. I'm worried about what's going on here. Lord, I know it's not beyond You. Do you praise the Lord for His ability? And then, fourthly, He uses the word power to talk about how we should glorify God. To Him be glory and majesty, dominion and power. This word for power here is the kind of, word, uh, kind of uh, uh, power that refers to authority. Authority, like governmental power. The power of Him whose will and commands must be submitted to by others. So it's not just that he personally is able to do whatever he wants, but he's also sovereign so that he can orchestrate the events of our lives so that everyone else is working as a part of his plan to accomplish his purpose in our lives. What a blessed truth it is to know that God's in charge. Because I'm telling you, we look at at our world today, and you, you ever wonder? Who is really in charge anyway? You ever wonder that? I do. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist here, but I look at what's going on in the White House and I'm thinking to myself, who's actually calling the shots there? (laughs) Who's in charge of all this? What is going on? Everything just seems like chaos. I'm so glad that in the midst of the chaos of our world, there is one who we can say definitively is in charge, and that is God. To Him be Power, that is authority. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He has all power. He has all authority. That means He has the right to do what He knows is best, when He knows it's best to do it. And He has not only the ability to do it, but He has the authority to do it. No one can stand in His way. No one can contradict Him. And though all the forces of hell should devise their most wicked plans to work against you, they could never thwart the perfect plan of God. He has the power. So when we talk about glorifying God, we're talking about simply acknowledging who God is and what God can do. That's how we glorify Him. We do it when we remind others. We do it when we remind ourselves. And then finally, as we close, one last thought from these verses, and that is when we should glorify God. To Him be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. So there are two times given us here. I told you this was not going to be that, that hard of an outline to follow. It wasn't going to be that impressive. There's two times, now and forever. Let's take them in reverse order. There is going to come a day when everyone who has ever lived will glorify God, whether they like it or not. Isaiah says in Isaiah forty five twenty three, This is the Lord speaking, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. This is what Paul was drawing from in Philippians chapter 2. When he said that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. there's a coming a day when every person in this room will bow their knee to God and give him the glory that he deserves. I don't care if you are the most staunch atheist. I don't care if you are the most convinced agnostic. I don't care what kind of horrible life that you are committed to. It doesn't matter everyone for all time will one day bow their knee and glorify God. And that's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. When we go to heaven, you know what our primary occupation is going to be? Glorifying God. I... I, I I appreciate songs about heaven that talk about the wonderful things we're going to see and I like being reminded about the reunion that that we'll have with our loved ones who've passed on. But you know what the greatest part about heaven is? It's not a street of gold. It's not whatever the mansions might look like. It's not the river of life. It's not the, the fruit that's on the tree. It's not any of that stuff. The greatest part about heaven is being in the presence of God for all of eternity and getting to spend eternity giving Him the glory that is His, that is rightfully His. We are going to glorify God forever. But are we glorifying Him now? Because He says it's not just the forever. It's the now. To Him be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. It should be both. At His starting right now, we should be glorifying God daily. In our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, with every part of our being, we should be consumed with this one idea. I must glorify God. First Chronicles 16, 29. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. If you know it, say it with me. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Maybe you sometimes get a little bit tired of hearing people talk about getting God glory and doing it for the glory of God. Maybe you sometimes wonder, should we, can we not just talk about something else for a little bit? But let me tell you, In everything that we do, in everything that we say, in everything that we think, there should be behind it all an underlying purpose, an underlying perspective on life that everything is supposed to be for the glory of God. Are you living for the glory of God? If you're living for your own glory, then you're not living for the glory of God. If you're living for your own pleasure then you're not living for the glory of God. God deserves to be glorified in our lives because He alone saves us. He alone sanctifies us. And since one day we're going to exalt Him forever, we ought to exalt Him and glorify Him now. Because when it comes down to it, the only life worth living is a life lived for the glory of God.